Hi, hey, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast, a podcast for non-Catholics, new Catholics, and those who want to explore the Catholic faith a little bit deeper. In this episode, we tackle six so-called myths about Easter. I hope you enjoy. Hi, welcome to the Cordial Catholic Podcast. In this episode, I thought it would be fun to tackle some of the so-called Easter myths. Every year, it seems like certain so-called myths are trotted out by the news media and reported on during Easter. Is it true that Easter has a pagan origin? Is it really impossible that Jesus lived and died and was resurrected? I want to tackle six of these so-called Easter myths and talk about why some are completely untrue and some, in the case of Jesus' life, death, and resurrection, are completely believable. The first of these myths is based on the dating of Easter. It goes like this. The date of Easter is set based on the spring equinox and therefore is a reappropriated pagan festival taken over by early Christians. This couldn't be further from the truth. Since the beginning of the Christian church, since the death of Jesus and his resurrection, Easter has been celebrated based on the Jewish Passover. This, of course, is because that traditionally Jesus was seen to have died by crucifixion and raised from the dead around the time of the Jewish Passover. All the accounts of the Gospels record this. And so, for the first 300 years of the Christian church, Easter was celebrated either on the first day of the Jewish Passover or the Sunday close to the first day of the Jewish Passover. And the Jewish Passover, being set by the Jewish lunar calendar, based on the moon, happened to often fall near the spring equinox. But this is nothing more than a coincidence. And when the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD firmly established Sunday as the day that Christians should worship, this meant that the date of Easter would fall on a Sunday. This meant that it would correspond more closely to the spring equinox more often than not, but it was still nothing more than a coincidence and had nothing to do with the spring equinox. The date for Easter, far from being a reappropriated pagan holiday like the spring equinox, was set based on Passover, and Passover was set based on a lunar calendar. And Passover was the time traditionally, according to the gospel accounts, according to all the early Christians, in which Jesus was crucified, buried, and then rose from the dead. It just happens to fall near the spring equinox. On the first myth, that the date of Easter is actually a reappropriation of a pagan celebration of spring equinox? Completely untrue. The second popular myth is that Easter is named for the goddess Ishtar, and that her symbols were the rabbit and the egg, and that she was in fact the goddess of fertility, and that Easter was a reappropriated festival celebrating the fertility of this goddess. Now, It's important to recognize here that Ishtar was a real goddess, a Mesopotamian goddess, in fact. We know this. 
but she wasn't the goddess of fertility, as far as we can tell. Here, the website History for Atheists is an invaluable source. A website which obviously isn't necessarily friendly to Christians or Catholics, the website strives to be a source of accurate information for atheists who want to criticize the Catholic or Christian faith. The author makes no bones about putting down some of these so-called myths of Easter, and this is one of them. He suggests that while Ishtar was a real Mesopotamian goddess, we can't reduce her to the goddess of particularly anything. It's far too simplistic to call her the goddess of fertility, because she may have been the goddess of several things. And from what we can tell, fertility wasn't even one of those things, even if we were to stretch it quite a bit. And her symbols, far from being the rabbit or the egg, were more likely the star, the lion, and the gate. Was Ishtar related to Easter at all? It seems unlikely. It seems even more unlikely when we dig into the origin of the word Easter. In fact, in Latin and Greek, and nearly all other languages other than English and German, the word for Easter corresponds more closely to the word for Passover. It's Pascha in Latin and Greek, Pac in French, and other similar variations on the word Passover in every other language other than English and German. In fact, in English and German, the word Easter has more to do with the rising sun or the direction of east than the goddess from Mesopotamia. And besides, would it even make any sense for the English or German Christians to import the name of a Mesopotamian god to rename their festival, which in every other language corresponded closely to Passover? This seems to make no sense, and I think it's safe to say that what we know of Ishtar, there seems to be no connection whatsoever between this Mesopotamian god and Easter, other than the names sounding kind of similar. On the myth that Easter was derived from the goddess Ishtar, I think we're safe to put this one to bed too. Okay, so if not Ishtar, then what about Eoster? This is the name of an Anglo-Saxon goddess of spring that seems to have been worshipped in parts of northern England by Anglo-Saxons. Now, I'm not particularly sure how to pronounce this. E-O-S-T-R-E is how it's spelled. Eostre? Ostre? Eoster? I'm not particularly sure. But at any rate, we only know about this particular Anglo-Saxon goddess from St. Bede, an English monk who lived in the middle of the 7th century. But he gives us no more information than this, just the name, and this connection to spring. Anything else seems to be speculation from history. The idea of eggs, the idea of rabbits, the idea of fertility, none of these things are connected to this goddess. All we have is her name and where she was worshipped. In reality, we know that Easter was celebrated by the church from the very beginning of the church itself. We know reliably since 325 AD that it was celebrated on a Sunday, a Sunday connected to Passover, connected to a certain time based on a lunar calendar. In fact, as far as we can tell, Easter was celebrated by Christians well before any celebration of this Anglo-Saxon goddess who has a similar sounding name. 
In fact, to imagine that the biggest celebration in the life of the Christian church was modeled on a Mesopotamian goddess whose name was not attached to the celebration in any other language other than English and German, or that is connected to an obscure goddess worshipped in northern England, seems to be, as the author of History for Atheists suggests, utterly ridiculous. I think it's safe to say that any connection Easter has to either of these obscure goddesses is tenuous at best, and seems actually completely unfounded. The final myth I want to put to bed before turning to a couple more serious topics is the idea that Easter eggs are pagan in origin. Here, we can refer to St. Thomas Aquinas. Aquinas gives us a picture of what Lent was like during the Middle Ages. In the Summa Theologica, he writes, Eggs and milk foods are forbidden to those who fast, for as much as they originate from animals that provide us with flesh. Again, the Lenten fast is the most solemn of all, both because it is kept in imitation of Christ and because it disposes us to celebrate devoutly the mysteries of our redemption. For this reason, the eating of flesh meat is forbidden in every fast, while the Lenten fast lays a general prohibition even on eggs and milk foods. Far from being pagan in origin, it seems like eggs may have more to do with Lent than anything else. Forbidden during Lent, once Christians could eat eggs again at Easter, it became a large celebration. So, the painting, the decorating of eggs in preparation for their being eaten at Easter, seems to make a lot of sense. We have, in fact, references from the 13th century that Christians decorated eggs as a symbol of the end of Lent and Easter. This connection, then, seems to have more to do with celebration, with the end of the great Lenten fast, the beginning of Easter, and the relaxation of these rules around fasting, the celebration of being able to eat eggs again, than anything pagan, anything to do with fertility, anything to do with birth, or the spring equinox, or these obscure Mesopotamian or Anglo-Saxon goddesses, who themselves have a tenuous association with fertility and eggs and rabbits to begin with. And on the rabbit thing? Yeah. I don't know. Where do a lot of these so-called myths come from anyway? It seems like much of this bunk comes from a 19th century Scottish Protestant minister named Alexander Hislop. His popular pamphlet, which became a book called Two Babylons, is a criticism aimed squarely at the Catholic Church and a lot of the so-called Catholic trappings. Hislop, who saw a problem with a lot of the complicated piety around Easter, managed to make several tenuous links to Easter as a pagan celebration. In Protestant areas, these criticisms became popular and spread. It's funny, I think, that a lot of these so-called myths originated, in the end, from a simple Scottish Protestant minister in the 19th century, and are repeated again and again and again. I want to turn now to a couple of myths which I think are important to prove as true. The first is this, that Jesus didn't live and wasn't crucified. Every year, it seems like several articles come out around Easter trying to prove that Jesus couldn't have lived and wasn't crucified. 
These become popular and are shared on social media, but are they worth our time? Are they true? Is there reasons to doubt that Jesus lived and was crucified? It's important to note, first of all, that mainstream scholarship does not debate that Jesus existed. Even Bart Ehrman, who's an agnostic scholar and a leader in a movement criticizing Jesus's life and ministry, and poking holes in who Jesus was and what we know about him, still maintains that Jesus did, in fact, exist. Ehrman goes so far as to say it would be ridiculous to believe that Jesus didn't live, didn't exist. There is an overwhelming amount of evidence, he says. Remember, this is from a scholar critical of Jesus's ministry, of Jesus's life. Ehrman believes in a school of thought known as mythicism, that much of what Jesus did, many of his miracles, much of his life, is shrouded in myth, myths created by the first Christians and perpetuated by the Christian church. But even Ehrman here says that Jesus did exist. Richard Carrier is in fact one of the few scholars who questions the idea that Jesus exists. But even Carrier himself can only identify seven other scholars who question the historicity of Jesus based on the overwhelming abundance of sources. Let's get this straight. Carrier can only name seven other people out of everyone studying Jesus who believe that Jesus didn't exist, or who at least question that he may not have existed. Remember, mainstream scholarship doesn't debate this idea. It's a settled question. There's an abundance of evidence that Jesus existed, Christian and non-Christian evidence. Only seven people out of all modern scholarship believe that he didn't exist? The number is underwhelming. So if mainstream scholarship agrees that Jesus lived, what about his death? Here again, mainstream scholarship agrees that Jesus was most likely crucified. Based on Christian and non-Christian accounts, it seems most likely, even to secular scholars. The Gospels and the epistles of Jesus' first followers attest to this. Remember, the Gospels use names of people times and places, and real events that can be traced by those who might want to criticize this for never having happened. We're told the name of Pilate, who sentenced Jesus to death. We're told of Caiaphas, the high priest. We're told of Joseph of Arimathea, who lent Jesus' followers a tomb to put his body in. If the crucifixion didn't really happen, people critical of the Christian faith could seek out these people find these places, and set the story straight. And we have non-Christian first-century sources as well, which talk about Jesus' death by crucifixion. Roman historian Tacitus and Jewish historian Josephus both write about the death of Jesus by crucifixion. And Greek writer Lucian of Samosata writing around 165 AD, also confirms the life and death of Jesus by crucifixion. These are non-Christian sources agreeing with the Christian sources, placing Jesus in a real historical framework. This is why, much like Jesus' life to begin with, his crucifixion is not often questioned by mainstream scholarship.
It seems most likely even to secular historians that Jesus did live and was crucified. The idea that this is simply a myth does not have legs. Jesus was, in fact, a real historical person who died a real historical death by crucifixion. The last myth And this is the linchpin that holds the whole thing together, because this is the central thing of the Christian faith. This myth says that Jesus was not resurrected. Maybe Easter wasn't stolen from a pagan festival. Maybe Easter has nothing to do with these pagan gods. Maybe Easter eggs aren't pagan in origin. Maybe Jesus did really live and did really die. But can we say that his resurrection was more than a myth? What is there that tells us that early Christians weren't just making it up, didn't just feel embarrassed and had to say that their leader did live after all, that he did come back from the dead, when in reality he was put in that tomb and never rose again? Two things here. First, if you aren't willing to admit the possibility of miracles, then you aren't going to accept the resurrection. Simple as that. The resurrection is a miracle. It's a supernatural event. So, if you come into this not agreeing that miracles can happen, then you aren't going to get very far. And you aren't going to admit that Jesus may have been resurrected. That's something to consider when looking at scholarship, and the question of Jesus' resurrection, and your own opinions. If we don't believe that miracles are possible, that the supernatural is possible, we aren't going to agree to a resurrection. Second, I want to pause here and say something of some importance. There are many dissimilarities in the gospel accounts of Jesus' life, his ministry, his death, and resurrection. I don't intend to iron them all out here, but they do have to be addressed. If Jesus' resurrection was a historical event, then the sources talking with that should agree in large measure. This is the criticism of many scholars, like Ehrman, some of these scholars who believe in the mythicism framework, that much of Jesus' miracles were myths exaggerated by the early Christians. These scholars would point to the resurrection as one of those myths. They would say that because many of the gospel accounts don't agree on the content, or the timing, or the circumstances of the resurrection of Jesus, this must be an example of one of those myths. Brant Petrie, a well-known Jesus scholar, talks about the idea of the gospel sources as history, and not as myth. He firmly plants these texts in a kind of text that is a history or a story of someone's life. These kind of texts are found elsewhere in the ancient world, and the gospel accounts seem to follow this kind of textual framework. So, Petrie says, the gospels shouldn't be taken as myth, but should be taken as true historical accounts, but not, he says, verbatim accounts of exactly what Jesus said and did. Those kind of accounts don't exist, says Petrie in the ancient world. Instead, what Petrie says, we should expect are true stories about Jesus, but not word-for-word accounts. It's still important, though, that we look at some of these dissimilarities, because I think what we'll find is that some of these so-called problems 
with the Gospels that seem to upend the idea of the resurrection, that seem to make it into a myth, can be easily worked out. Scott Hahn, a Catholic Bible scholar in his own right, breaks down the account of the resurrection to help us explain some of the contradictions. Let's go through two here. The first contradiction, cited by Ehrman and other so-called mythicism scholars who believe that the resurrection was a myth and that these inconsistencies undermine the idea of a real resurrection, point to the idea that the Gospels seem to contradict each other on how many women come to Jesus' tomb to witness his resurrection. The Gospel of Matthew has two women, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary. The Gospel of Mark has three women, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, and Salome. The Gospel of Luke has Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James. No mention of Salome, but Joanna and other women are mentioned. And the Gospel of John only mentions Mary Magdalene going to the tomb. Although, in fact, when John mentions Mary telling Peter and the other disciple about the tomb in his Gospel, John uses the plural. Mary says, We do not know where they may have laid him, in John 20, verse 2. Again, Mary says, We do not know. It seems there was someone other than Mary there. Otherwise, who is the we she is talking about? It's important to note, says Han, that none of these accounts actually contradict one another. They just feature different women. Matthew has two women. Mark has three. Luke has several. John only has one. In every account, Mary Magdalene is mentioned, but sometimes with other women, sometimes by herself. But they are consistent. Think about it this way. I might be at the grocery store and run into my friend Phil and his cousin Wanda and her friend Jude. When I get home that night, I tell my wife about the story of running into my friend Phil at the grocery store and how we caught up and chatted and had a really nice conversation. I don't mention to my wife that I saw Wanda and Jude because my wife doesn't know Wanda or Jude and it isn't important to my story. Is this story somehow factually untrue? Well, it's not because I did run into Phil at the grocery store and we did have a lovely conversation. Just because I leave out two of the other people that were there doesn't mean that the story is untrue. Maybe I'm later telling my friend the same story. And maybe in this case, my friend knows Wanda and my friend knows Jude. And so I'll include in that recount that I was chatting with my friend Phil and saw Wanda and Jude. The story remains the same even though I'm now adding two more extra characters to that story, because those people were always present, just not mentioned in the story before, because I didn't see it as being relevant. This is what Han talks about in his account of these contradictions. The people being mentioned in these stories, the additional people being mentioned in these stories, don't make these stories contradictory, they just tell us more facts about the same stories. Mary Magdalene being mentioned in every story is important. She was always there, sometimes with other people, sometimes by herself. Although, even in John's Gospel, it seems like there were other people there with her. Remember, later she says that we do not know where they laid him. So it seems like there must have been more people with her. 
The second set of discrepancies do pose a bit more of a problem, but they seem to be easily reconciled. Scott Hahn outlines them like this. In the Gospel of Matthew, the women come at dawn to the tomb. In the Gospel of Mark, they arrive just after sunrise. In the Gospel of Luke, they come very early in the morning. But in the Gospel of John, Mary Magdalene arrives while it was still dark. The only problem here, says Hahn, is with John's account of the Gospel. The first three synoptic Gospels agree that the people arriving at the tomb, the women arriving at the tomb, come sometime around sunrise, sometime around dawn, very early in the morning. The problem begins with John, who has Mary Magdalene arriving while it was still dark. But here, Han talks about the idea of light and darkness as motifs in John's Gospels. These are often things he uses as metaphors. And in this context, it seems probable, it seems likely that he was using this as a metaphor. And even if he wasn't, the discrepancy seems awfully small. Maybe John got it wrong in the small things. Remember, Brant Petrie talks about these not being exact accounts, but being accurate in the larger strokes, being true histories, but not in exacting details of exactly what Jesus said and did. Is it plausible that even if John wasn't using a metaphor here for light and dark, that he was wrong by maybe, say, half an hour? And maybe he thought Mary Magdalene arrived just before it was light? It seems possible that maybe John has her arrive a little bit early. But this discrepancy seems awfully small, especially considering all the other Gospels agree with what time the women arrived at the tomb. It seems to make much more sense to accept this than to conclude that one Gospel presents a huge discrepancy or a huge problem when the other three seem to agree. It's important to be honest about these discrepancies. They do exist, but I don't think they pass the test. I don't think they warrant a dismissal of the resurrection as being unlikely or being impossible or being an event that did not happen. The first discrepancies around who was at the tomb seem easily explainable. The second discrepancies about what time the women arrived at the tomb seem also to be worked out quite easily, either by suggesting that John was speaking metaphorically, which seems quite likely given the way he speaks other places in his gospel, or that he was slightly wrong by a small amount of time as small as half an hour. This does not seem to be a discrepancy large enough to dismiss the account of the resurrection based on the rest of the evidence. So, what other evidence is there? Well, it's interesting to note that all the first witnesses were women. Scholars have placed a great emphasis on this idea, and rightly so. Because in ancient times, women were not seen as likely witnesses, as reliable witnesses. So, the fact that God chose to have women as the first witnesses to his resurrection, seems fairly interesting. This is, on one hand, a social commentary on how God uses men and women equally in his new kingdom, but also seems to be an interesting point of history. If the resurrection was a real thing that happened, 
Why were women the first witnesses? And if women were the first witnesses, wouldn't this totally undermine the resurrection account? But nonetheless, it seems the account was real. It seemed that people believed the account because the Christian message grew and the Christian church grew and Christians were martyred. Christians were killed for believing that Jesus rose from the dead, despite the first witnesses being women. The fact that the first witnesses were women should have made their testimony very unreliable, should have made the resurrection seem unlikely right at the very beginning. But that's not the case. In spite of these so-called unreliable witnesses, the faith grew, and grew, and grew. It's interesting that in spite of these so-called unreliable witnesses, the faith kept growing. The empty tomb is also important to note. Remember, the gospel accounts, which began as oral traditions, as oral stories passed amongst the first Christians, give the name Joseph of Arimathea, give the name of the person whose tomb was used. History tells us that even the early Jews, based on this information, admitted the tomb was empty. Whether they would have suggested that Jesus' followers simply stole the body and remained living on in denial, or were too embarrassed to admit he didn't rise from the dead and tried to carry on in spite of a lack of a resurrection, early Jews would admit that the tomb was empty because they knew it was empty, because they could go and see the tomb, because it was known, it was known amongst the Christian church, it was known amongst the Jewish world, where the tomb was, because we're told whose tomb it was. We also have the witness of the early martyrs, people who died for the Christian faith, and from the historical figures I already mentioned when talking about his crucifixion, of Pilate, of Caiaphas, of Joseph of Arimathea. These were real people, real people who, if the account of the resurrection were to be proved false, could be quite easily proved false by finding these people, by talking to these people, by quashing the movement of Christianity as it began, by finding a tomb that was not empty, by finding early Christians who may have stolen the body and, under torture, under pain of death, would finally admit they had done this. But instead, we find a growing movement of Christianity based on people willing to die for the idea that Jesus rose from the dead. In 1 Corinthians, Paul tells us, Paul, remember, who was a former persecutor of the Christian church, that 500 people saw Jesus at once when he appeared. Paul tells us these people are still living, although some have died. Paul wrote this to a church expecting them to dig into this evidence, expecting them to go out and find these people if they wanted to. So, again, even Paul plants this in historical reality. The resurrection, he says, was a real thing. Here are people who have seen Jesus resurrected. Go find them. Go talk to them. If the early Christians wanted to disguise the resurrection, were afraid that it may have been found out as a fraud, they certainly wouldn't use the names of so many historical figures. They wouldn't have placed this in history. They wouldn't have suggested you go out and find these people who saw him. This seems very unlikely. If the resurrection weren't a real thing that happened, if it were just a myth, 
As someone like Ehrman suggests, why would the Christian church gamble with placing it in real historical time, next to real historical people? It seems awfully unlikely. And the movement kept growing. People kept dying for these truths, which makes them seem more true. If they were lying, would they die for Jesus they knew was dead? If they stole the body, would they die for a Jesus whose body could be found somewhere else? Would they die for Jesus whose tomb was not empty? I want to end with this. William Lane Craig submits the fact of Jesus' death and resurrection to a historical test. Craig says that of all the hypotheses about what happened to Jesus, the resurrection seems the most likely explanation. It has the most scope and power to explain the events. If God raised Jesus from the dead, Craig says, this explains why the tomb was found empty, why the disciples had or claimed to have post-mortem experiences of Jesus, and why the Christian faith came into being. It explains why people repeatedly saw him, why Paul can suggest that 500 people saw him and challenged his readers to go and find those people. It explains why the disciples, the authors of the Gospels, set the events in real historical times and places. It seems the most plausible explanation, Craig says. It makes more sense than any conspiracy hypothesis, any hallucination hypothesis, any stolen body hypothesis. These hypotheses, says Craig, don't explain all of the facts. Nothing else meets the conditions he says, as well as the resurrection hypothesis does. None of these explanations seem to explain why the Christian faith continued to grow, why it continued to flourish if Jesus weren't really raised from the dead. If this was a hallucination, you would think that eventually the faith would peter out. You'd think that the early Christians wouldn't die for this message, wouldn't place this resurrection in history where other people could check their facts and determine that they were wrong. No, says Craig, the resurrection hypothesis seems to be the best explanation of the facts. It seems to pass the muster of history. So, as unlikely as it seems, in spite of the so-called contradictions, in spite of women being the first witnesses, in spite of miracles seeming to be impossible, Jesus seems to be a person in real history. The resurrection seems to be a real historical event. It seems to be placed in history. It seems to be unapologetically placed in history by witnesses that are unafraid of their facts being checked. It explains, says Craig, the spread of Christianity, why Christians were willing to die for the message and not simply abandon their faith when things got difficult. No, Christianity grew and continued to grow. If other hypotheses are true, or were true, if it were a hallucination, if Jesus didn't actually die, if Jesus' body was taken from the tomb, if he was hidden, if he didn't really rise from the dead, do these other explanations satisfy the historical facts? Do these other explanations satisfy why, explain why Christianity grew and continued to grow? They don't seem to. And Craig suggests that 
most historians would agree that there is no other best-fit explanation for why Christianity spread the way it did. The best-fit explanation, says Craig, the explanation that most scholars would agree makes the most sense, is that Jesus was really raised from the dead. It's a compelling idea that the resurrection is the best explanation, and it does beg us to take some kind of action. Ultimately, says Craig and Petrie and T. Wright and other Christian scholars, there is an element of faith that requires us to take that ultimate leap into trusting these sources, into trusting the best historical explanation for the facts. And it's hard to believe in a resurrection if we don't think that God is able to resurrect, that there is a God. So, there is a leap of faith required. But I think based on history, based on these facts, based on Christ's living and dying, and the historical plausibility of the resurrection, I think there's room and reason enough for a leap of faith here. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Cordial Catholic Podcast. Be sure to like the Cordial Catholic on Facebook. Send me feedback to cordialcatholic at gmail.com. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn Radio, or Google Play Music. Please be sure to like the podcast and give me a review if you can. That helps push the podcast closer to the top and helps more people find it. I really appreciate that. Make sure you visit thecordialcatholic.com for show notes and for my blog. And I'd love to hear from you on Twitter as well, at Cordial Catholic. And hey, if you like this show, I'd love your support. It costs about $12 a month to host this podcast. And if I can find 12 people to give as little as $1 a month, it would keep the show afloat. Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope you learned something and enjoyed it. And it's a great episode to share with your friends and family, I think. So please do. I'd love that too. Thanks for listening and God bless. brought to you in a special way by our co-producer patrons over at patreon.com slash cordial a special thanks to ellie and tom kelvin and susan Stephen, suzanne and victor phil noah nicole michelle jordan john james gina and arem for your special support at the co-producer tier and making this thing possible you guys are fantastic god bless and thanks for your support